a call to serve. It has no sound, yet I have heard it. It has no form, yet I have clearly seen it. America's Navy, a global force for good. You gotta admit they do great ads, huh? And I also think it's really interesting. You know, those American Navy ads used to be a force for good, and they changed it to a global force for good. What do you think's up with that? So I have an interview coming up with a guy, excellent guy, so fortunate to get this guy to come on. His name is Nick Cook, and he's written a terrific new book about Ingo Swan, you know, the famous psychic part of the remote viewing program, and really one of the most gifted psychics kind of ever in terms of the documented things that he did. Absolutely amazing. But what's really interesting about Nick, and the reason I kind of changed this clip up at the beginning is... Nick has been in the aerospace and defense industry for a long time, highly regarded as a writer slash reporter, and has a ton of stories about that, some of which he shares in the interview. But also, he just brings a different perspective and a different sensibility. And it's one that we need to hear, you know, because we want you on that wall. We need you on that wall. There's some truth to that, right? I mean, we do need defense even though it's always a mixed bag. So like, for example, one of the things we got into is the latest phony baloney UAP report, or maybe it's not phony. Here's Nick's perspective. If we bring that up to date now, we've got a UAP report that has recently been handed into Congress, nine pages in the unclassified version. The things that are really left out or the elephant in the room in this report are the exotic anomalous sightings data set. But Nick, hold on. I mean, the elephant in this room is so fucking big, there's no room for anything else. I mean, they killed people or threatened to kill people, threatened for their family if they ever, ever said a word about this. And then December 2017, you know, let's roll it out in the New York Times. But there's no way this ties to the reality that we're talking about. Well, for me, what I try and do is I'm trying to transpose my mind into the mindset of the military here. I was in that world when I was a Jane's editor. If I wanted to write about out there stuff, I had to write on a line. And it took me a while to work out where that line was. But once I knew where it was, I stuck to it. Absolutely. What those guys are doing in that UAP report, the writers of it, are sticking to that line. So we get to talk about that and other things at the end of the interview. But most of the interview is really dedicated to... Ingo Swan and the remote viewing program that he was a part of. And there's just a lot of interesting anecdotes that go along with that, including kind of the missile gap, psychic spying gap thing that we got into and the reality of all that. Here's another clip. So part of the mind game was, hey, those Russians might be spying on us. And then we all find out that yeah, actually, they were. And they were kind of more into the human intelligence kind of stuff. What if we can plant thoughts in that Reagan's head? What if we can kill them remotely with psychic energy? I mean, they had a different spin on it, and they weren't altogether unsuccessful. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to wave Yuri's spoon at you like that. But it, it's, yeah, he found himself caught up in all of that. It sounds ridiculous that... You know, part of the Russian threat was deemed to be that they could plant 
suggestive thoughts, psychic thoughts. They can influence people. Stick around. The interview's coming up. Welcome to Skeptica, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. Today, we welcome Nick Cook to Skeptico. Nick is a super interesting guy. If you've been around this stuff, you know, this kind of Skeptico stuff and related stuff, you will certainly remember 2001 title, The Hunt for Zero Point. And that book was not just like a super duper bestseller, you know, real, real bestseller, not like some people's bestseller, but it was highly, highly influential. It's still referenced. I mean, I think Nick is probably one of the people most responsible for this whole term zero point, like everyone knows zero point now. Well, this book from what is it now? 20 years ago, Nick? Exactly 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's hard to believe. That book is really what started all of that. And just to round out, you know, who this guy is, very successful career now as a writer, consultant, speaker in the aerospace and defense industry. We're certainly going to want to talk about that kind of a belly of the beast part of that that I don't know. We, we just going to have to parse that out and see what that means. But the primary reason for connecting with Nick today and I'm so thankful for my terrific friend and the guy I greatly admire, Al Borealis at Forum Borealis, for making this connection. But the reason to talk today is a book about Ingo Swann. And that book's title is Resurrecting the Mysterious, Ingo Swann's Great Lost Work. And if you need to get a little refresher, Ingo Swann, remember Ingo Swann? the just unbelievably super psychic guy. We'll talk a little bit about that, you know, to tell the truth. I love that story. It's on the TV show, like world's greatest psychic kind of thing. But also where you probably know him from, if it jogs your memory, is the whole remote viewing program, SRI, Stargate, Russell Tark, Hal Putoff, and the guy who remote viewed Jupiter before our probes got there and he got it all right. And then what really freaked people out, what really freaked people out in military and in military intelligence is like he psychically spied on their super secret, because they asked him to, but he spied on their super secret magatrometer, whatever the thing is, Nick can tell us, that's buried in six feet of cement, surrounded by a Faraday cage. And he goes in and says, oh yeah, I can do it. And by the way, I can stop it from working which has these far-reaching implications for, you know, I mean, if you can start stop that, what else can you stop? Like maybe somebody's heart or something else, which we'll talk about more. So anyways, if you needed the refresher on Ingo Swan, that's Ingo Swan. And here we are, Nick Cook is writing kind of a really important book that pulls together some of these unpublished works of Ingo Swan. So, I hope that long introduction can kind of orient you if you needed to. And with that, Nick, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Alex. It's fantastic to be here. Well, like I said, this is going to be a good one. Tell us more about you, your background. Like I said, you're very accomplished, not just with these books, which are very important, 
but also as a filmmaker, but also as a, you know, corporate successful guy working with industry, which I think is a tremendous grounding. So tell us more about your background before we get into the book. Well, it's kind of hard to know where to begin, actually, Alex, but um, I, I suppose I can take it back to uh, university and I had no idea what to do when I left university. I took a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. My parents, uh, my parents divorced, but one side of them were diplomats and we traveled, they traveled a lot in the Middle East. So that made me want to sort of study Arabic and, and, and Islamic studies, which I did do. But then having done that, I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. I guess it's, you know, lots of people could say this about the way their lives track out. At the time, I felt like, you know, I was in a sort of deep black hole. What on earth am I going to do? But you look back and it kind of all makes sense. So my dad was a, an engineer and an inventor. Uh, and I'd always been very interested in aerospace and sort of technology. And I thought that I wanted to enter the aerospace industry. That's what I I thought I wanted to do. My dad said, why don't you write about it? And it never occurred to me once, but you know, I owe my dad a lot, but I really owe him that one because that opened up my whole world. I, uh, I joined a trade publication um, and then I moved from that in 1986 to a magazine called James Defense Weekly, which has a sort of very uh, a sort of passport-like kind of opening function into the industry and into government and the Pentagon and so forth. It is the Bible, the go-to, the, yeah. Yes, it, it has that reputation and, and you know, deservedly so. It, it's been around a long time. Fred Jane had started it out sort of like 120 years ago, you know, so there was, there was a lot to, um, uh, to, to sort of uphold and a lot of tradition to bear in mind as I went knocking on people's doors. But um, that uh, was a fantastic sort of grounding for me. Again, I got to know uh, the industry. I got to know uh, its, uh, its good side and its bad side. And then in 1991, as you alluded to in your introduction, I sort of decided that with all of this access, what I really wanted to do was, uh, was figure out what is the Pentagon's or what is America's? You know, America was the most interesting place that I ever went. I always went to when I was doing my uh, Jane stories. So what what's the biggest thing that America might be sitting on technologically that it's not telling us? And you know what? Since we're there, fill people in like who's reading Jane's? What's What stories are you kind of breaking? What are people reading? And then what are... Those people are really the influencers, you know, who are they influencing? Who are they talking to? What is this whole kind of milieu that you're put sure. yourself in? So it's an insider's publication. It's a trade publication. It's not a what we would call a, a high street newspaper, a tabloid newspaper. It doesn't kick down doors. It's very subtle. We build, we built contacts. We, I, I was very lucky. I, I was there at a time, you know, the Berlin Wall was not yet, in fact, it wasn't, there was no hint that it was going to fall when I joined Jane's. And then it, of course, crumbled in 1989. That gave me an opportunity to go and check out all the 
technology I'd been speculating about in the magazine on the other side of the former Iron Curtain. So we got into Russia at a time that it was sort of glasnost and opening up, fascinating time. So the sorts of stories we'd write, I mean, I remember going on this amazing sort of industry river cruise down the river Volga. There were literally, it was the, it, the, the, the Soviet Union hadn't opened up yet. It was the end of 1991. The, the boat was stuffed full of spooks and a couple of lucky journos who'd managed to wangle a trip on it. And I was one of them. And uh, we, we visited all of these MIG factories and I was able to get a, uh, a, a performance manual of something called the Caspian Sea Monster, which was half boat, half plane, it was the size of a small ship. It was huge and it flew a few feet off the ground. And this thing had been sort of speculated by the Pentagon as existing, but there were only kind of rumors of satellite shots. Anyway, I bribed a guy with half a bottle of whiskey and I got the manual and we came back and we blew that story on the cover of Jane's. And then it got into insiders and, you know, so it was, it was that very much that sort of publication. But, but influential within its own field. Yeah, that's fantastic. In a lot of ways, it kind of sets a backdrop for a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about, particularly because, as we'll talk about, you are also personally very interested in consciousness, extended consciousness. I love the story about your wife having a shared near-death experience, and you're on board with all that. So, we're going to walk a very interesting road here with you. Let's talk for a minute. Let's go back 20 years and talk about The Hunt for Zero Point, because as I mentioned, it's a very important book. And in a way, it kind of bridges this world that we're going to talk about, these two worlds. In a way, it points in that direction. Tell us the, the origins of that, the impact it had, how it changed things for you, what happened after that. Well, I was I, I was reluctant to to do it in many ways. I was um, uh, I was dragged into it by <laughs> I don't know by circumstance. I don't know what in the end sort of really pulled me into it. But I just realised in this rather sort of um, cynical way, in a sense, that I had this fantastic access through James. I could uh, the, through the good name of the company and the magazine, I could open doors. Um, that access extended pretty much to the sort of upper echelons of government. So whilst I was going around um, in my day job, my everyday, you know, filing stories for the magazine, I thought, actually, I want to use this for something more. And, and that's when this sort of question occurred to me, which was, you know, what's the biggest thing that I could investigate? And I figured that the biggest thing would be a new energy and propulsion source that perhaps hadn't been revealed. I mean, that struck me as a sort of technologist, as the, the biggest thing that the Pentagon could hide or any agency could hide. Just to put a point in time, at 2001, this was in the air. Is there some advanced technology? Do we have access to that technology? But it's not like science fiction stuff. I mean, it's right. Well, well. Good point. I have to say it, it's in the air now and and in corners of 
bookshops and, and magazines. This yes. is kind of pre-internet. Totally, so totally, right. It, 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 was, it was very, it was utterly taboo in my world. All the things we talk about today and we talk for take for granted that we can discuss about UFOs and consciousness and intelligences and, you know, all of that stuff, totally verboten in my button-down trade industry journal world. So I had to do this in secret. And I sort of write about it in the book, and sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek, but it wasn't at the time. I was very aware that if I put a step wrong, if I asked the wrong question to the wrong person, I would be fired from my job. It was as simple as that. It was that taboo. No one in my sphere mentions UFOs. In fact, interestingly, and if we get to talk about the UAP report that came out a few weeks ago, my contemporaries now in, in, in the trade and the aerospace and defense trade journal press, they're still not talking about it. It's still that taboo there, but it's opened up in, 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 in other areas, thank goodness. But yeah, so I had to tread very, very caref carefully. But I just said to myself, I'm going to keep my eyes and my ears open and I'm going to ask questions that sort of, you know, don't seem too out there. And I'm going to see what I get back. I'm like a sort of fisherman who casts a, a line out. I just want to see if I get any nibbles. And anyway, I, I never even set out to write a book, by the way. I was, I was just curious. But after about seven or eight years... So I started in 91 researching, probably by uh, 98, uh, 19, no, 98, I think, I'd got enough material I suddenly realized for a book. And that, that's its genesis. When did the hunt really begin for you? There had to be a moment where you were like, wow, this is, you know, the Volga River uh, bottle of uh, whiskey kind of moment, you know, I'm sure there were many, but but when did it really turn into, oh my God, this could, this could change the world because you had to have that sense of it. I was making a documentary in 1998. We filmed it in 1998. It was called Billion Dollar Secret and it went out on the Discovery Channel. Um, and it, it, whilst on one level you'd look at it and go, this is the guy who's investigating UFOs. Actually, it wasn't so much as me treading a line between that divide between class of deeply classified aircraft programs and UFOs. And I was billing it very much as I'm treading on the deeply classified aircraft side of the line. But in the middle of that, in the course of that investigation, I went to Lockheed Martin at Fort Worth, a very familiar beat to me, uh, where they've got a mile long plant that churns out or did churn out then F-16 fighters. And I did an interview with their senior scientist there, a chap called Boyd Bushman, who went on to be quite controversial, actually, because he um, released photographs of sort of dead aliens and stuff. And that wasn't the Boyd I knew. The Boyd I knew then, that was his sort of really, I think, his first sort of emergence into the limelight. And he pointed me to a guy called John Hutchison. And John Hutchison is a Canadian inventor who was investigated by the Pentagon for his, well, John would like to say it was for his technology. Actually, I think what it boiled down to 
was the power of his mind. But we might we might talk about that a little bit later. But I think it was Boyd Bushman pointing me in that direction that said to me inside, wow. So the aerospace and defense industry that I've been reporting on most of my career up to that point, well, exclusively reporting on uh, in my career up to that point, um, has an interest in this stuff. It really does have an interest in it. And it's looking into places that I never thought it really looked. And, and that gave real impetus to my sort of then slightly flagging research powers. <laughs> you know, so folks, you can, we will eventually get back to Ingo <laughs> and this fantastic new book. But the path is super interesting because the path that you're kind of laying out gives us a whole different perspective on Ingo Swan SRI Stargate remote viewing, because it's another version of the same kind of thing. So continuing to kind of backtrack, because I can't resist it. You know, the interesting thing about Hutchison is he fakes some of that stuff. Mm. And I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that because there's people I know I really respect who are super sight enabled a bill yeah, yeah. and they say i think he's real i've met the guy i think he's legit and i'm like well, why do you fucking fake the youtube videos then <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. is it the trickster kind of thing or is it more of the same it's it's a yuri Uri geller thing which will pop up when we talk about stargate too same thing Uri geller no doubt he can do this stuff unbelievable you have stories you personally met with Uri, had your kids there and he did oh he's gonna get a spoon that's my yuri geller spoon actually it, it's written out to my daughter in fact. So um, we're, we're going to talk about that in a second, because, you know, the other place I got, I got at Jacques Vallée, I interviewed Jacques Vallée, and he has a similar kind of story, did it right in front of my face, sat there, we did an experiment in the uh, cafeteria of SRI, did the mind reading thing, all that. So hold on to that spoon, because we're going to talk about it in a minute. But then the Bushman thing, just so if people don't remember or have a strange kind of sense, because I even had to double check and look it up, I thought this was the guy, but this is the deathbed confession guy. This is Richard Dolan sitting down in the bed of the, it looks like a hotel room, and this guy's saying, okay, he's on the ventilator or the oxygen, whatever, come fairly. He's about to die for real deathbed. And we've always, in our society, we've always given special treatment to deathbed confessions. We realize somebody doesn't have a lot to lose, and he blows the whole thing. He says, yeah, Area 51, I was there. I saw the bodies. The whole thing is real. I don't have any reason I'm releasing myself from the confidentiality agreements. This is what happened. And here we're talking to a guy, Nick met the guy when it was just kind of standard business as usual. What are the F-16s look like coming off the line thing? I mean, that's a that's an interesting point, right? It Well, it is. And actually, in a sense, I think it ties into what you were just saying about John Hutchison and, and that, you know, why fake it, John? And, you know, John's, I think he's come out, come clean and said, I, yeah, there were some experiments I did fake. So we'll, I'll come on to the Boyd thing in a minute. But with John and, and some of those other people who fake stuff, who are deemed to be psychics, I read it as... I've become famous in my own right, in my own sphere. There is a certain expectation on me to perform. 
And if I, and I have to always be able to perform. If I can't, I've got to think of something fast. And with John, that meant attaching strings to uh, model flying saucers, which he then uh, rather unsubtly dangled in front of the camera. He's the first to fess up and go, sort of, why did I do it? But, you know, getting back to Boyd, I love Boyd Bushman. And we kept in touch after I did this interview with him in 1998. He was, I think he said he was sort of like half English on one side and half Navajo on the other oh, side. Uh -huh, so he uh -huh. had this amazing sort of vibe. And he was quite prone to prodding the system at Lockheed Martin. And, and I was I'd quite often get phoned by their public relations people going, please don't publish that story that Boyd Bushman gave you details of the other day, because it's kind of really embarrassing to us. And, you know, and then we'd have this sort of long drawn out conversation about what could and couldn't be published. But, you know, Boyd was this fabulous character. But I think, you know, and I met some quite unsavory people who sort of clung on to him along the way. And he was such an open spirit He tolerated them and listened to them. He listened to everyone. But I think in the end, there were some people he got sort of influenced by. And my reading of Boyd's sort of deathbed confession was that that wasn't the Boyd I knew. So I choose to remember with great fondness other aspects of him, which were really, really genuine and remarkable. And he was a, a very probing, curious uh, and inspirational scientist to a lot of people. You know, that's, that's interesting. And I'm not, I don't want to pursue that too much, because I don't know, that's your world. But what you've just given there is a super interesting, important, and I, I gotta say, I've never really considered it so much. But it's just a very real part of the process. I'm not saying that that is an explanation for Boyd's quote unquote confession, or if it's should be taken literally, but I'm glad you added, I'm glad you added that because that's another element of it is that, you know, we hear things and they become our memories or they, you know, in a, just a very real way that we've all all done. So interesting. Yeah. So before I get too far afield, <laughs> which I'm going to do, let's talk about this new book, Resurrecting the Mysterious Ingo Swan's Great Lost Work. What are people going to find in this book? Well, I, I hope I hope a lot. I was sort of blown away, really, when I read particularly the second volume. Ingo wrote quite prolifically. In fact, we found a few sort of lost manuscripts in his archive, his family and I, when we were going through it. So maybe even that backstory is kind of interesting. You know, so what I didn't add to your bio, which is interesting. So you're a very good writer. You write successful books and then people approach you and say, hey, why don't you ghostwrite a book for me, which you do. And then you be in those become bestsellers. So you're kind of known as a guy who has a voice and can produce. So the backstory of how you came to quote unquote edit and write because I think your contributions to this book are key. And I even wrote to you in the email. In a lot of ways, I found what you wrote. I don't want to say more interesting than Ingo, but certainly on par interested. So th that backstory is of interest. Well, thank you, first of all, you know, I really enjoyed working on that book and, and, and you know, writing the introduction to it and, and the the epilogue as well. So I <laughs> How I got to know Ingo actually goes back to the hunt for zero point. 
two, I mean, a lot of the Hunt for Zero Point was like a fantastic calling card for me. I tried when I finished it to sort of move on. You know, I, I wanted to move back into Jane's. I mean, by some miracle, I was still, you know, um, employed by them after the book came out. Um, and I wanted to get grounded again in the sort of business of aerospace, but I kept on getting pulled back by the hunt. And it's been a fabulous calling card for me really ever since. Two people who rang me or approached me um, after the book came out, shortly after it came out. One was uh, Uri Geller and the other was Ingo. And Ingo said, the next time you're passing through New York City, would you drop by? And so because I did quite a lot for work, I did the next time. And it was, I think, uh, in 2002, end of 2002. So we met then and talked and he was interesting and his uh, his house at 357 Bowery was just fascinating, full of sort of slightly spooky kind of artifacts. And Nick, for pause for a second and paint that picture, which you do so marvelously in the book of pulling up Lower East Side Manhattan, brownstone sitting out front as a guy smoking a cigar, uh, a, a gay guy who is a fantastic artist, is this amazing psychic, not that that matters, but paint the whole picture. And he's just kind of holding court in a very, in a very kind of uh, blending into the background, but observing the world kind of thing. And he's checking you out when you come in, like, is this a guy who gets into the inner sanctum of my world or not? Uh, that's a great, great scene in the book. Well, just to take it back a tad further, Picture now the slightly buttoned down Brit pitching up in New York, who is slightly in awe and nervous about his meeting with, quotes, the world's greatest living psychic. You know, what is he going to see in me that perhaps I don't I don't want to share or I don't want to know, you know, so um, all, all of this is going through my mind as I pitch up at 357 Barry. And uh, as you say, I, I, the taxi draws up, I get out, uh, it's dark, uh, it's autumn, so it's a bit sort of uh, windswept and rainy. Uh, and as I'm walking up the steps of the brownstone, I'm aware that a guy I'd taken to be a down and out, who was sort of puffing on, a, uh, on, on the sort of the end of a cheroot, um, is looking at me. And because it's dark, I can't quite make him out. He's got a sort of combat jacket, Vietnam era combat jacket on. Uh, and as I get closer, I realize, crikey, it's Ingo. Um, and this is what he would do. He would, as you said, Alex, he, would, he wouldn't let people into his house if he didn't like their energy. Uh, that was one of his tricks, was, was, was sitting on the stoop and pretending to be a down and out as he watched you roll up. Another one recounted by a friend of mine called Robert Knight, who is a rock photographer who also knows or knew Ingo. Uh, he had an experience where he was um, sitting on the stoop with Ingo before being admitted into the inner sanctum. And Ingo had uh, said, if that pigeon, uh, which is next to you, uh, um, I think it was hops onto your foot, you're in. If it doesn't, you're not coming. 
Anyway, the pigeon did hop onto Robert's foot and he was in. So it was these sort of quirky little kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, entry points into Ingo's world that made him just a fascinating character. Then when I got down, the, when I walked down the stairs, he just told me that he had it cleared by a shaman of a, um, some kind of sort of weird entity that had rushed out of, of, of the basement in a howling uh, sort of uh, gush of wind. So all of this sort of, you know, prepped me for sort of quite an alarming sort of an initial uh, intro into Ingo's world. But that was in 2002. He then actually asked Robert and I to come back and, and uh, film him, f- film bits of his life and we bits of his life. And we did that in, I think it was about 2009. So I then had a second sort of go at getting to know Ingo uh, in 2009. And then of course he died in 2013 and his family very kindly asked me whether I initially, whether I would write a sort of definitive biography of his life. Well, we looked at all of his papers and stuff that had already been written by him, including quite a lot by Ingo himself. He, He liked to write about his life. And uh, uh, it was decided in the end that we'd go for this other project, which was to um, to 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 do this uh, uh, great lost work of his, this this resurrecting the mysterious volume of his two sort of quite seminal pieces of work that describe uh, both the inner psychic mechanisms that plug us into the hologram or the consciousness sphere, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's sort of part one in a very boiled down way. And part two really is what Ingo called the matrix or the multiverse, which is uh, depth consciousness. It's, it's you know, the, the, the thing that uh, consciousness uh, supporters would say is the substrate of all that is and, and, and reality. So that is the second half of the volume. And together they make up this uh, this one sort of take on what I like to call really is it's sort of Ingo's take, I think, on consciousness. Here's the summary from the Amazon page offers a grand unified theory of the human experience and in part of consciousness itself asserts that paranormality is part of an expanded reality set rooted in the relationship between quantum theory, us the observer, and something infinitely more profound. Well, I I think that, I didn't write that by the way, but I think it captures that exactly. Two things really jumped out at me about Ingo's world. One is that for all his extraordinary abilities, and I think those are well proven. I mean, we can talk about some of them, but you mentioned some, you know, in your introduction. But for all his proven abilities, Ingo always maintained that these were latent abilities in us all. We all have them to some degree. It's just that we've got to uh, find them or they have to reveal themselves to us. Point one. Secondly, is that there is no, or yeah, there is no in Ingo's mind or in Ingo's mind, there was no division between paranormal and normal. This was an artificial construct that had been placed there by science or historians or philosophers, you know, call them what you will. And as such, we have through them 
come to think of these two worlds, a, a world of normal and a world of paranormal. Ingo said, there are no two worlds. It is just one world that uh, has not revealed itself to us in all of its glory yet. And that is part of uh, his and our and you know everyone's exploration, uh, their journey. And some of us uh, explore it deeply and, and others don't, but it's all consciousness, you know. So I think those are the sort of two big takeaways from, from Ingo's world. There's a real paradox here that we have to resolve in terms of our need to know, our need to pursue, our need to explore, which is so much what Ingo is about and so much of what this book is about. And then this other sensibility of the Emerald Kingdom kind of sensibility that, hey, no matter what we do, we are severely disadvantaged by our viewpoint. We are looking through the wrong end of the telescope and we're talking about things we can't possibly understand. So, you know, just check yourself a little bit kind of thing. Well, absolutely, as you said, Ingo described this. He had many names for it, but the Emerald Kingdom was one of them. It's this idea of a greater reality, a substrate to existence, that we don't customarily see because we're not tuned to see it. In fact, there's a sort of very small digression. I'll come back to Ingo. You know, it, it, I, I'm a, as a writer, I'm always looking for sort of analogies that, that allow me to picture these very complex ideas simply. Um, you may well have, I found, actually, I think, Alex, you might have uh, interviewed Don Hoffman. Have you pr interviewed Professor Donald Hoffman? Yes. Yes. Well, I, I too spoke to him. Uh, I've read his works and, uh, and seen a lot of his presentations on YouTube. Hoffman's analogy that we view reality on a sort of screen that is defined for us by what he calls, I think, conscious agency. In other words, that, that we only get to see the reality that we need, strictly speaking, for our survival. And, you know, our survival boils down to some pretty uh, functional things. But hold on, he throws that survival bullshit in there because he has to, to kind of have any kind of credibility within his community. And then he has to throw in evolution too. But when you really push him, and we had a good conversation, you really push him towards the spiritual, kind of all that falls away and he goes, yeah, that's, that's bullshit. It's closer, I think, what he's saying to what Ingo was saying and what you, I think, really beautifully brought into focus is this, I, 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 I'm not sure tuning is the right word, but it's close. But what you guys are saying, you and Ingo are saying is that maybe there's some relationship, some biophysical relationship between the quantum mechanic biology and this larger consciousness that allows us to kind of sync it up, you know, in a way that makes it an experience that we're having in the way that you're talking about with Donald Hoffman. Yeah, well, so just to sort of finish the Don Hoffman thing, where it helped me was his description that on that screen that we have created for ourselves, the reality screen, our user interface, much like the user interface here on my, I have on my laptop, there are icons, and it's those icons that we interact with. We don't need to understand the guts of the machine, the software and the hardware that make it work. I just have a, I click on an icon that I need. And I think, without wishing to paraphrase 
uh, Don Hoffman too much. That you know, that's sort of the that's what I took certainly as the sort of the main uh, 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 thesis or the main facet of his exposition that allowed me to understand that there are everyday icons and there are an infinite number of them and we interact with them but occasionally what i call a what i call a rogue icon appears on the screen now ingo illustrated that i think really well in uh, a chapter he's got in the first half of uh, the book resurrecting the mysterious about the titanic and i don't know if you recall it but uh, in 1898 an author called Morgan Robertson wrote a fictional account of a book called The Titan, of a ship called The Titan. The Titan hits an iceberg, mid-Atlantic, it sinks, loss of life. Its dimensions are almost identical to the Titanic. And then Ingo goes into a whole lot of experiences that various people had building up to the sailing of the real Titanic that were very sort of premonitional and forewarning of that incident. Ingo's point was that there was a leakage, there is leakage between the Emerald Kingdom, the world that exists behind Don Hoffman's reality screen, and our world, you know, our three-dimensional, four-dimensional world. And those leaks are what we experience as paranormal phenomena. And those leaks are what I call, you know, slightly corrupting Don Hoffman, rogue icons. So, and they appear and manifest in all sorts of ways, as you and I know. Uh, so that for me was sort of the linkage, but, but yes, in, Ingo's Emerald Kingdom is that depth reality, that greater reality that we customarily don't see because we've just tuned it out. It's not necessary for our survival. Our survival hinges on food, water, warmth, love, reproductive sex you know and and there are very few other things that we need outside of that and if we saw the depth reality and the greater consciousness in all of its glory it might just blow our minds well there's so much there nick and that's fantastic i love the rogue icon idea i actually love all the things you're saying and we could spend a lot of time talking about them because they're not talked about enough they're not explored and there's a lot to explore there so I was kind of reaching for a little bit something else, and I'm going to pursue my little thing a little bit further because I think it links me into this work that you've done, this fantastic book, and the larger work that you've done and that Ingo has done. Because Ingo writes, you know, go read Penetration People by Ingo Swan. First, buy this book. And then what secondly, book. <laughs> Penetration. What? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but first, buy this book resurrecting the mysterious write a review on amazon you know and and i just gotta i mean take the time to do that because remember nick has to keep this stuff going in terms of this stuff you know there's a lot of choices that we have in terms of media and things that get attention and you buying the book and writing a review is like a vote saying you know yeah i want more of this kind of stuff so i digress but it, here's where i was going with that building on what you're saying rogue icon stuff and all that but i'm gonna take a slightly different spin because what i hear uh, you guys saying is that it is the move from the uh, emerald kingdom to this 
quantumized reality that then locks it into time space, space time, right? Because so many of the things that we hear about in these extended realms that we're going to talk about, your wife's shared near-death experience, uh, the out-of-body experience, all these things, ET encounters, what people automatically say is, bam, I was outside of space time. I was outside of time space. Everyone around me said it was two minutes. To me, it was a year outside of space time. Right away, if we think about that, we get that that is a larger reality, right? That our reality here inside of space-time in this kind of consecutive, so that was before, this is after the other icons on the screen, is kind of dumbed down for us to kind of process in a certain way, maybe for a certain reason. Maybe this is, as a lot of people have said, this is our school and this is the way this school works and it's chunked down to do it. So. With all that said, any comments you have on that would be welcome. The other thing that just intrigues me about Ingo Swan is he gets so much shit wrong. I mean, he gets this stuff right that is like, no way anyone should be able to get this stuff right. You shouldn't be able to remote view the moon and get back data that's real. You shouldn't be able to remote view Jupiter and get back the, the, the exact data that the probe sees when it gets it. You shouldn't be able to do all that other stuff. And he can do it so he's right in this way that we can't reconcile. But he's wrong the first the first words of the first chapter of the book. He's got the near-death experience thing completely wrong. And you know that because your wife had a shared near-death experience. I know that because I've talked to virtually every near-death experience researcher and to the extent that we can use that data, and I think we have to, if we're going to have any kind of intelligent conversation about it. A Don Hoffman quote that I love is, you know, the, the language of God is silence, but if we're going to talk, then let's be as precise as possible. And the precision of our language is science and 200 peer-reviewed studies on near-death experience tell us it isn't what Ingo says, it is more what, uh, um, Allie, is that your wife's name? Yeah. Allie, it's yeah. it's it's what Ali describes. It's what Ali describes ex exactly, which is, it's love. It's release of this. It's moving to that higher realm that is the light and the love. And not that people are making that up. It's just that's the data. That's where we're at. So, I don't know. I I, I got I battle with the fact that, you know, how could he be so right in these fantastic ways? And then how can he be so wrong at the same time? And isn't that a feature? Isn't that a feature of this Emerald Kingdom thing that we have to constantly be aware of? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, but, uh, you know, first of all, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that when I was turning up uh, at Ingo's doorstep, you know, I had built a picture of him where I had transposed him in my mind before I met him into a superhuman. Well, he wasn't. He was just like everyone else. He's just a human being. He uh, had some uh, emerald talents, as he would call them, uh, and he sharpened those talents by an immense amount of research. He went on this massive journey to try and find out what it was that made human beings susceptible to uh, psychic interaction. In fact, I've just been sort of rereading uh, chunks of his autobiographies today, where these amazing tests that he did with the American Society of Psychic Research, I think, in 1971, he wasn't getting anywhere. He was bored. He was felt like he was a guinea pig, a lab rat, being poked and prodded. He was getting fed up. 
He was doing these so-called out-of-body tests, these out-of-body trials, where they would put a tray full of objects above his head, maybe eight feet above his head, six, eight feet above his head. And then he had to go out of body and try and see what was in the tray above his head. And he was sort of not getting very far. And then there's this wonderful description of how he comes up with a whole bunch of sort of, uh, well, it's script that he thinks is Arabic and on a green sort of tube. And he got, oh, you know, look, I'm really out of here. I'm not getting this at all. Every time I try and do it, I'm, you know, I'm having a few successes, but largely speaking, I'm, I'm wrong all the time. And then Carlos Osis, who was the parapsychologist who was running the trials, turns the tray around and says, look, Ingo, look at that. It's a can of 7-Up. And the 7-Up had been transposed in mirror image style. So it looked like Russian or Arabic. And that was the moment Ingo went, okay. I'm in. I'm in because I know that this ability resides in everyone or pretty much everyone. Now I've got to go and research the hell out of this to find out what it is that makes us tick and engage with that Emerald Kingdom, that, you know, greater reality, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that was sort of his life's work. Nick, if we don't talk about SRI and Stargate, everyone's going to be kind of mad because there's a lot to that whole story. Tell us about that chapter of Ingo's life. Well, two, I mean, there's a load of things that are interesting there. One of them is Dr. Hal Putoff and, and Russell Targ, obviously his, his uh, co-collaborator. But, you know, how I met Hal when I was researching The Hunt for Zero Point because the zero point of the title refers to zero point energy, a, a milieu of fluctuating subatomic particles that flash in and out of existence. And maybe, maybe the sort of uh, dividing line between our 3D, 4D world and whatever it is that exists beyond that, the, 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 the furthest we can go in physics to see the, 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 the material world is that substrate of uh, zero-point energy, flashing particles flashing in and out of existence. Just to put it in perspective for people who maybe don't, so we're talking about Emerald Kingdom, we're talking about consciousness, extended consciousness, and God, and all the rest of this stuff, but for the uh, aerospace defense industry, and just for society in general, you know, the way it's built, military industrial complex, you're always looking to one, defend against someone else weaponizing it, wink, nod, how can I weaponize it? And if there is this interface, it's kind of like a hydrogen bomb kind of interface thing, if you will, you know, it's like once you tap into that very subtle little shift, there's this enormous potential in it. And that's why there is this interest in zero point, right? That's what took me to Hal Putoff. I wasn't looking at remote viewing at all. It just happens that Hal is this sort of nexus of where consciousness meets the this, that, that sort of uh, energy realm that you were describing. And of course, yes, if you can tap into that energy and you know there are conflicting reports as to whether people have successfully done that or not, but you know, if that were something that could be reliably and repeatably done by 
an aerospace or defense entity, that is kind of holy grail stuff. It's, it's yes, it's the sort of bomb analogy that you, you made. It's cracking that key of physics that gets you into this whole new paradigm. That's the goal. And that's what took me to see how, of course, I suddenly crossed momentarily into the world of remote viewing for which he had also been responsible with Russell Targ back in 1972 or three, I think, when the program kicked off. And Ingo, they found as the guy who they would test. You know, Ingo was sort of, I don't want to characterize him as a lab rat again, because he wasn't. And in fact, he categorically refused to be pigeonholed in that way. But he actually, because he had this immense grounding this science knowledge as well he was able to work with put off and targ to formulate the protocols of remote viewing and in fact along with jacques valet who helped to devise the coordinate remote viewing protocols that came out of computing um ingo was very much up there as sort of you know rightly along with those others is 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 referred to as you know, the father or the godfather of, of remote viewing. And let's add a little detail to that just so people have a sense, because sometimes we say protocols and we skip over it. What are some of the things that Ingo and Jacques Vallée, Hal Putoff, Russell Targ, what are some of the things that they implement, suggest as part of this training program that they will then teach to other remote viewers and now has been taught to thousands and thousands of both government employed remote viewers and private remote viewers. Yeah. And actually, funny enough, Alex, you've, you've reminded me of something else today I was reading about Ingo, which is Ingo was a Virgo. Uh, I'm also a Virgo. And uh, he, he absolutely nails our sort of primary characteristics, I think, which is that we're, you know, we're quite pernickety. And I think that's our left brain side. But on our right brain side, we're quite sort of, you know, we like to think we're quite artistic as well. Ingo was certainly that. There was that data crunching side to him, which enabled him to come up with the, uh, the protocols of remote viewing that we're talking about. And those, his contribution, uh, tweaked by a suggestion from Jacques Vallée, was that uh, if... Uh, if we if we uh, are, f are given coordinates, uh, and, and to begin with, they were just map coordinates, but then somebody thought, well, actually, that could be uh, that could be faked because someone could, some enterprising individual with a really good memory, could memorize every single map coordinate uh, on the surface of the planet, and you know, then slew their so-called mind to. Uh, uh, telling people what was there. Uh, a ridiculous notion, of course, but, you know, that's what um, skeptics were, were were angling and leveling at, at that. And, and just to be clear, because it's a super important point, these, super important point in my mind, these folks aren't like doing theoretical experiments. They're doing operational implementation. So they're mindful of the potential fakery because they might get that from some smart ass guy from a Naval Intelligence Agency who says, you know, hey, how do I know? So they're looking at it from that perspective. They're not like, oh my gosh, you know, James Randi might come in poo poo on herself because they're in the business of actually getting reports and then wowing their sponsors with 
yeah, I just went and remote viewed this Russian sub base and here's how it really looks, right? Precisely. And, you know, um, here's how the military works. I mean, it's actually not unlike how business works, but in the military and also in the military intelligence community, people rotate, you know, they a, a new program manager will come on board. He uh, has a mandate to shake things up. He might be very skeptical of what was being done by the old guard. He looks at the programs that he's been handed and he goes, do I want to continue these programs? We should remember that in one guise or another, remote viewing was funded by the military year on year for 18 years. My view is, you know, knowing something, you know, there's a lot of jokes about, you know, when I first entered the defense reporting world, you know, about, you know, $250,000 toilet seats on, on, on naval submarine warfare aircraft, you know, all of which was true, or a lot of which was true. But generally speaking, the military does not continue to throw good money after bad if the thing, whatever it is, isn't working. Sooner or later, someone goes, you know, someone with oversight goes, enough already. This this stuff isn't delivering any results. We're going to kill it. If for no other reason than to cover your ass kind of thing. It's like not that they necessarily care about the money or pinching our pennies, which we're giving them. It's a, hey, I don't want to be the guy who's <laughs> who's on the news with the $250,000 toilet seat thing. I need to caveat that a bit with the, the, the remote viewing program was conducted predominantly in the black. It was a black program. It was a classified program. Classified programs, by their very nature, escape some of that accountability and scrutiny. So you can screw up more in the black world than you can in the white world. But having said that, not for 18 years, year on year on year, that doesn't work. Somebody sooner or later wises up and goes, this is someone's selling us a crock of shit here and it, it, it's not working. You know, the other interesting little anecdote I love from uh, Joe McMonagle, and I remember, I don't think I interviewed him, but I think it was in another interview that he gave where he kind of was reminiscing with Russell Targ and he goes, hey, man, we did pretty good, man. We made it through four presidential administrations. We made it through, you know, some very fundamentalist Christian, you guys are channeling the devil kind of stuff. And we made it through, you know, uh, just kind of a reality check thing, the way the world works, which you're well aware of. And also Ingo is too, you know, like that's one of the things I, when I was rereading Penetration, one of the things I picked up, he's like, I, I love the pragmatic part. He goes, you know, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. This this military industrial stuff and, you know, what they're asking and just the, bureau, the idiotic bureaucracy and all the rest of that. But that's the world that these guys lived in. And I think they took a certain bit of pride in being able to navigate it in the way that you're talking about. So they find Ingo because he's on to tell the truth, right? Well, Ingo's first sort of public appearance was on to tell the truth. And I forget the date, but it was probably soon after after he moved to New York. He was working, he got a, a job at the UN. And yeah, he popped up on to tell the truth. Remind people what that show was all about. They've they've uh, rebooted it now. It, it's back on. But uh, well, yeah, here in the UK, uh, we call it something else. I think it's What's My Line or something. But it, it basically a panel of 
guests, sort of celebrities, I guess, sit there. A guy walks on uh, and they have to guess his profession. Will the real psychic please stand up? And that, of course, was Ingo. And that was because he had demonstrated under laboratory conditions already, which you were alluding to, these abilities. So, you know, he's prime, prime material to join this military industrial intelligence program at Stanford Research Institute that says, hey, we better get on this stuff. And uh, maybe the Russians are onto this stuff, which is one of the stories. We don't know if that's true or not, but part of it is true. Or maybe it's because ET is telepathic and we have a sense that there's something going on in this extended realm. Whatever it is, we need to get a better handle on it. This guy seems to have some abilities. Get him in here. Let's see what we can do. And then he turns out being this key guy, like you're saying, who says, yeah, not only can I do it and I can prove it to you, but let's develop a protocol so we can train a bunch of remote viewers to go and do this thing. Indeed. Uh, you touched on an interesting thing there, which was, you know, were the Russians doing it at the same time? And was that which was that the thing that prompted the Americans to do it, the CIA to do it? Coming up as a defense journalist, I was incredibly sensitive to messaging that we would get from the Pentagon and my own Ministry of Defense during the Cold War that was overhyping the Soviet threat. You know, there are some famous cases from history. We've got the, the bomber gap, you know, back in the 50s. We had the ICBM gap in the 60s. And during the Reagan administration, when I was a cub reporter, uh, there was something that was called Soviet military power. It was a big, thick book that came out every year. And it was quite a thing, actually, for the defense press. We would pore over it. And, so, you know, what new things had been revealed by spy satellites that the Pentagon was letting us in on. But we were conscious, too, that this was a lobbying tool, that it was it was it was basically asking for more money in next year's appropriations. So we had to be very careful with it. So taking that back to remote viewing, there was this, you know, uh, story attached to it that it was the Russian threat, the psychic threat that had caused the CIA to get involved. To begin with, I'm really skeptical about this. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the bomber gap, the ICBM gap all over again. There is an amazing book. Uh, it's called something like uh, ESP Wars. Yes. And it, if you know it. it yeah, it's... I interviewed those folks, the, the one oh, Russian wow. guy. Well, that, and the, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I will tune into that for sure. I mean, that that must be a must have been a fascinating discussion because it's it, it, it tells, it speaks of a time that was particularly interesting in my career, I touched on it earlier, when the Soviet Union fell or was just about to fall and there was this sort of glasnost window opens up, the Russians go, we'll show you everything. Uh, and so we all dive in and we look and see what they've got. And in that window, the, the remote viewers from both sides got together. And it's uh, that that's what makes that book so fascinating is you have the two sides, like two crusty old cold warriors talking to each other about their experiences. And, you know, you can tell there may be the odd spin in there. I mean, there always is. But from the For way the most that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, it's real stuff. 
just so we make sure people understand what we're saying here is so there's this thing like you're skeptical because the missile gap kind of thing the russia you know go hide under your desk but i learned when i was a little kid because they might drop bombs which is true but you know hiding under the bit desk wasn't really going to help but that's part of the whole kind of mind game that we're playing so part of the mind game was hey those russians might be spying on us and then you find out or we all find out that yeah actually they were and they were doing it in some different novel ways than we thought you know they were kind of more into the human intelligence kind of stuff what if we can plant thoughts in that reagan's head you know or the predecessor what if we can kill them remotely with psychic energy i mean they had a different spin on it and they weren't all together unsuccessful yeah go ahead so maybe that's a, a good a good segue into ingo i mean into well, uh yuri i'm sorry sorry to wave yuri's spoon at you like that but it, it's yeah he found himself caught up in all of that uri did and um that was the that was the concern was and it seems ridiculous in fact actually even as i say it it sounds ridiculous that you know the russian threat or part of the russian threat was deemed to be that they could plant suggestive thoughts psychic thoughts they could influence people the russians had a a technical they loved technical names for things they called it psychotronics but yeah if you read that esp wars book you see that it's it is real it's a men who stare at goats thing you know they had their it, own. It, it is and you know if we're to believe the account of i think his name was general savin who headed up the soviet military warfare unit when the soviet union fell and the chechen wars started up in 1995 savin says that he forward deployed psychics with combat units so that he could get them closer to the threat being of course, Islamic fundamentalist terrorists and a, a very non-technical cadre of troops. So how do you fight a non-technical cadre of troops? You send psychics in because you, you don't, they don't communicate via normal means with radio traffic and cell phones, at least not always. You know, they might send messages by carrier pigeon or you know in a forked stick so you need an extra dimension of intelligence capability to go find those guys and that's what savin was doing by sending his psychics in into tactical situations in chechnya to uh, to go do that fantastic i had never heard that before and what about the et angle you know that was first introduced to me by researcher grant cameron who you know, it was one of the guys to first discover the Wilbert Smith memo from Canada. And the last line in that, that says, yeah, the U.S. is investigating this full throttle. And there's a mental phenomenon here that is, you know, high priority, higher than a hydrogen bomb. They have to factor that in, right? I mean, that has to be one of the check items on the, yeah, you know, the, uh, Russia, you know, E.T., you know, all the things. D don't you think? I mean... Uh, Jacques Vallée, oh. Jacques Vallée's there. I mean, and Ingo's, uh, Ingo's, you know, looking at the other side of the moon. Uh, you know, it had to be, and extended consciousness had to be. Joe McMonagle, who is a spy, is spying on the East German, West German border, had a near-death experience. Had Raymond Moody's book in his 
secret file when they opened it and when they interviewed him at SRI. So, you know, all these things I think are, you know, check items, you know, demons, uh, God, uh, and he, 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 they're all, all in the soup for Stargate. Well, you know, you know, in many ways, all those roads or a lot of those roads lead back to SRI in the early 1970s. You know, it, it, there was an extraordinary group of people and minds meeting there. And it's interesting to see how they all spun out into the world. As we've mentioned before, in addition to uh, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ being there, you know, Jacques Vallée was there, Jack Sofati was there for a tiny while. And if you take Jacques Vallée, of course, you know, he very much went out and pioneered this whole idea that the UFO phenomenon is intricately bound into consciousness and that under certain circumstances, reality kind of gets bent out of shape when you are in close proximity to UFOs and ET or whatever it might be. So Jacques was really looking before anyone else or before most people, certainly, into the whole psychic aspect of the UFO phenomenon, for which I think he deserves a great deal of credit, not the least because he's been in the game for, you know, sort of 50 or 60 years. Um, but yeah, uh, if we bring that up to date now, we've got a UAP report that has recently uh, been handed into Congress, nine pages in the unclassified version. And I think the a few things stood out for it for me, you know, as a an aerospace analyst, uh, was yeah, okay, good, positive progress. Um, UA the UFO phenomenon is accepted as a reality. What is uh, still in debate and in dispute is what the nature of the phenomenon is. And whilst sort of a great portion of the report talks about the more conventional threats uh, in the aerospace world that could be vested or represented in this UAP phenomenon. Um, the things that are really left out or the elephant in the room in this report are the exotic anomalous sightings data set. You know, the stuff that actually push comes to shove we're all interested in, which is the really weird sighting stuff that has, you know, boggled and beguiled us for so long that was just mentioned in parenthesis but nick hold on i mean the elephant in this room is so fucking big there's no room for anything else i mean they killed people or threatened to kill people threatened for their family if they ever ever said a word about this and then december 2017 you know let's roll it out in the new york times leslie kane ralph blumenthal interviewed them both on the show respect the crap out of them but they totally got duped right i mean this is a that what they released in the new york times is not classified this is the biggest breakthrough information change in story oh well but yeah though it wasn't classified oh let's leak out another video of an uso coming up out of the water well well, you know, yeah, that happened, but we're not sure what it is. I mean, this is such a mind fuck that I, I, I don't even get, I do get it. Cause most people are just, okay, you know, whatever you say next kind of thing, but there's no way this ties to any kind of uh, the reality that we're talking about. 
Five pages. You said nine pages. It's five, five pages, and we're to believe that this is a, a preliminary assessment. It is by no means preliminary, and it is by no means an assessment. It, it fails on both of those. I don't know. I don't get it. Well, uh, for me, what I try and do is I'm trying to transpose my mind into the mindset of the military here. I'm trying to view this through the lens of the writer or writers of the report and the people that they are really sending it to. The subtlety and, thing that you talked about at the beginning of when you were writing for Jans, you correct. had to know how to write it and write it in a particular way. That part I get. Yeah, totally. And, 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 and that's everything in a sense, if you're in that world. Uh, I was in that world when I was a Jane's editor. Um, I had to write on a line. If I wanted to write about out there stuff, I had to write on a line. And it took me a while to work out where that line was. But once I knew where it was, I stuck to it. Absolutely. What those guys are doing in that UAP report, the writers of it, are sticking to that line. They know that go too far either way, they're going to get a whole shitload of flack. They'll just be gone. I mean, it's not even that they'll get a flack. I mean, Correct. be either working a desk, desk job yeah. or, you know, processed out or, you know, whatever. It's just that is a career limiting move. So actually, what I thought that it did was very successful in that it, 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 it in its world, it raised the idea, the profile of the UFO as something that is real and we need to pay attention to. And you can't ignore it because these things, whatever they are, are flying over military installations and really sensitive military installations. And if you turn around, this is the rock and the hard place they found themselves in, because if you turn around and go, nothing to see here, you're going to get leaks like you wouldn't believe. Whistleblowers coming out going, uh-uh. Uh, actually, these things are appearing over our sensitive installations because the Navy was confronting this stuff, was being confronted by it all the time. Note who is absent from the UAP report, the US Air Force. The US Air Force, which has a history of UFOs going back to Project Blue Book and even before, way back to the 40s, is no or next to nowhere to be seen in the UAP report. That, to me, is telling. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the the fundamental question here, I think, once we get past the bullshit surface level stuff, is the good ET, bad ET question, right? And that's getting played out right now between uh, Stephen Greer, for the most part, pushing that, a bunch of other people, but let's just put it on Stephen Greer, kind of another version of the Space Brothers. These entities are trying to help us. We need to connect. And there's actually, you know, you, the, it's inescapable with this bullshit UAP stuff. The history of it, it's really inescapable to read the data any other way. I mean, when they go to the nuclear bases, ET that is, they disarm them, right? And then they go to Russia and they arm them. And they go, we can fucking do whatever we want with these things. We're trying to tell you, go look at the 
go look at your fossil records. These things can wipe you out, cut it out. But they don't. If they have that ability, they have the ability to do whatever the hell they want. So if you just, so I'm going to cherry pick. I'm just going to cherry pick that data and not the other data. But that would support kind of the good ET Stephen Greer thing. And then you have, you know, Tom DeLonge. Of course, we should trust Tom DeLonge because he's a rock star, Blink-182, you know. And we have, uh, uh, who's it? Peter Lavenda. Peter Lavenda. Yeah. Spook number one, you know, say, hey, you know, I, I love their cover story. It's like, we wanted to get to the bottom of UFOs, so we decided we should go to the Pentagon. You know, it's like, okay, go to the guys who've lied, d killed people over it. You know, what? And, and I want to get to a minute. I want to deconstruct the, the, the A and D industry because we can just sit here and throw, I can sit here and throw mud balls and no, I mean, it is fundamental to our way of life. We need a defense industry and we, you know, it's a, it's a few good men, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. I stand on that wall kind of thing. There's a freaking reality to that, that we cannot get past, but there is this tension in any democracy that says, yeah, don't get too carried away with that either because really, we the people decide you know whether you get the gun or you don't get the gun so there's all that that kind of subtlety that's been going on since time began you know when you ever had a military but th this part of the good et bad et is being played out right before our eyes and the problem not problem but the whole thing about the preliminary assessment of the unidentified aerial phenomena is they're coming down just one way bad et threat threat Pentagon, you know, kind of thing. So they could switch, you know, they can switch the theme back and say, oh, wait, they're good ET, they're, they're you know, our brothers. But that, that, that's what bothers me is it obscures the real issue, which is a larger issue of consciousness and extended consciousness and all that. Throwing a lot on the table, please take over. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, we're back again, in a sense, to bomber gap, missile gap, and all of that. Though the narrative line taken by the UAP report is very much one that you would expect a military intelligence authority uh, or, or authorities to take. It, it, it is. It, it was so obvious to me, and I think everyone probably who has either reported on or been in the industry that you know I reported on. That, that that is a, if you can take a positive from all of this and, and bear in mind, whoever was handed this assignment, you know, go write this report, must have absolutely been, uh, I mean, you know, thinking, what have I done to deserve this? Because it's such a poison chalice. Uh, you can't get it right. But probably somebody said, if we can take something from this that suits us, what is it going to be? And that thing is the threat narrative. It's here is an opportunity for us to, to characterize this as a threat. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a threat, uh, nor am I saying that it is one. In fact, for me, there isn't enough data yet to... I, I see the data, by the way, that you know people like Robert Hastings have come up with about you know, UFOs over nuclear sites, which is, to my mind, incontrover incontrovertible. Those things appear with regularity and have done for decades over nuclear installations 
of multiple descriptions. That bit's clear. The implications of that to me are not, which is why I'm not polarizing it as, you know, they're good or bad. I just don't think the data's clear enough yet, for me certainly, to draw that distinction. But it's interesting. It's super interesting. And I think it is all bound up with consciousness. By the way, I would agree with you on the good ET, bad ET, because the other thing I see is the, you know, raping you without your consent in a kind of quasi public in the extended realm don't fit in any uh, near death experience uh, account that I've ever heard. So what's up? What's up there? So I, I agree, it's much more subtle, much more complex. And even the lumping of ET as singular, you know, as opposed to multiple, multiple, multiple species, multiple different time frames, multiple agendas within species. I mean, all that stuff has to be on the table in a way that we can't begin to understand. So I'm with you on that. I agree. True. And, and that is a very good point, which is that I mean, understandably, those who are coming to this phenomenon uh, relatively recently are, you know, characterizing ET as just a thing, you know, a, a one sort of entity. But I think anyone certainly who has come at this from a sort of consciousness perspective that asks the question, are there layers to the reality that we see? And in those layers, may is it possible for intelligences of various descriptions that we fundamentally fundamentally wouldn't recognize as being remotely human or or akin to humanity might they reside in those layers and to characterize that multiplicity potentially of intelligences quote uh, as et is just fundamentally wrong but you know that is a result of people coming relatively late to the narrative and also coming at it from a nuts and bolts perspective, which is not unnatural, actually. You know, if you view your world as a nuts and bolts threat hinterland, then you're, that's how you're going to see the world. It takes a lot to, you know, I mean, I've been looking at the consciousness thing probably for a decade, maybe longer, if you sort of uh, on the on the sort of sidelines, take into account the remote viewing story and Ingo and, you know, but even when I knew Ingo, um, I, I couldn't get my head around the whole consciousness thing or begin to then. So to expect the military to is 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 a big ask. Yeah, fair enough. But get, getting back to the book, Resurrecting the Mysterious, Ingo Swan's great lost work. And also, you know, I do want you, if you can, to at some point talk about, I want to pick up this book. I mean, I will pick it up. I just didn't have the time. But this looks like a really good read, The Grid. And I hear you, you have a sequel, sequel coming out of that. And then uh, here's some of the other books. But hey, let me pause for a second. What's The Grid all about? Well, the, the, the grid was sort of my project in my sort of in-between years, uh, as I call them, because uh, after I left Jane's, I had this uh, wacko kind of download moment that what the, um, what the aerospace and defense industry should really be doing is saving the planet. And that is so counterintuitive that when I got the idea, I was 
doing everything I could to sort of push it away, going, this, this actually doesn't make any sense. But then when I looked at it, and, and it came out of, of course, what download moments do come out of, which is, you know, I think Mal Malcolm Gladwell would probably attest to this, tens of hours of research, you know, into a particular thing. And of course, I'm grounded in the aerospace and defense industry. And what I see in it is a whole lot of unused technology in uh, our understanding of the planet uh, from subsea through sea, through the atmosphere and into space. This is an industry that understands Earth's ecosystems. So why isn't it helping to save the planet when Al Gore's telling me that the planet is under the greatest threat that it's ever faced? And that was sort of my moment. So I went off for five or so years and uh, had very high level dialogues with big aerospace companies. I worked with some large ones like Lockheed Martin on that very thing. And, and there were good people, really senior people in those companies that wanted to make that work unquestionably. Uh, and then guess what? Threats pop up again. We have ISIS pops up and we have the Russians annexing uh, Crimea. And suddenly that window sort of slams shut. You know, the, 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 this sort of collective madness that had permeated the sector for five or so years. Wow, wouldn't it be fantastic to, you know, go out there and save the planet? That would be great. That is then characterized once more by reality, which is, hey, we're in the business of threats. That's what we do best. Let's go back to business. So I'm sort of out of a job at that point. And exactly at that time, my wife, Ali, has this uh, shared death experience when her mum dies. And uh, I'm thinking, wow, my wife, who I trust uh, absolutely, is telling me that she went to a place that was timeless, infinite. Um, she knew everything. It was characterized by uh, connection and love. And she was there. I was in the room while it happened to her, but I didn't see any of that. What the heck was that thing? So I then go off and do the research, and what I come back with is the grid. And so I couldn't write about it because I didn't have enough data on it for nonfiction, but I did have enough to go and construct a, a thriller around it. And, and, and that's the story of the grid. Fantastic. You know, I, I, I don't want to get into the climate change thing. I think it would be a really interesting discussion. I think what you're bringing, and I'm so glad we're bringing this up now after hearing you for 90 minutes, I really have a greater sense of who you are, and I have so much respect for what you've done and what you've brought to us. And I think there's a there's really a deep part of what you're saying that syncs up again with a lot of the ET stuff. So a lot of these people, these people, many people have reported having direct contact with ET and this environmental factor comes through. So again, we have to be careful because we don't want to misinterpret the Emerald Kingdom as it gets mistranslated. But there does that comes through too, too much, too often, too consistently to completely dismiss it. The other side of that, I guess the cynical side, the skeptical side is that clearly it seems to me, and I'll just throw in my two cents and then we don't have to go there, but the global warming thing seems like a power grab from the beginning, all about controlling, all about it, and in the same way that the COVID-19 pandemic has some parallels of like, let's control, 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 and then let's worry about the science secondarily. So without 
touching on that too much, or but I, I got to give you the last word on that, and then I, I do have to talk about the final topic. We got to talk about Scientology. We have to talk about you know Elrod Hubbard and uh, Al Crowley over there, your guy in in England, and all that, and and that part of the extended consciousness realm, because it's not all rainbows and unicorns in the extended realm no, either. No. But but first, and I guess I didn't, I, I jump around, it makes it impossible for these interviews to follow. But here was really going to be my point, Nick, and I mean this sincerely. Your vision for an aerospace defense industry that is uh, aware of its power to do good on a planetary environmental sense, I think you're coming at that completely in a genuine way. And I think that you bring all, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people within those communities who, who could easily see that as part of their mission. And it's cool that you're bringing that forward. Well, it's, it's just, I suppose, counterintuition is sort of something that I, I, I like to, I like to explore. I, I think if you're a novelist as well as somebody who writes nonfiction, you know, those two things aren't such strange bedfellows. You know, I mean, the counterintuitive thing is sort of how you build, you know, bizarre, it's my wife saying, you know, where do you get these ideas from? Well, you know, it, it, it's just, I take what I see and throw it around. And that's really how the whole, aerospace defense industry saves the planet idea came up and and it's it's not dead by the way i mean it's it's actually it's very much alive and i think it, that it is something that engages more of a millennial generation sort of zed uh mindset than the sort of baby boomer generation that of, of which i am and and the bulk of the industry that i reported on was when i was reporting on it so you know there, there's there's good stuff to be had and done there for sure. Uh, on the whole dark side of consciousness, yeah, I, I don't, to be honest, I don't know a tremendous amount about it because I don't really go there in a reporting sense. Yeah, you know, I'm aware that quite a few members of uh, the whole remote viewing program were Scientologists. Ingo was Ingo. Scientology. Yeah, and, yeah. and Hal Putoff is Scientology. And then... Uh, Price, price is Scientology. And it's not like uh, uh, Ingo reaches some point where, and we have to be careful here because it's a, it's a life and it's a life lived, as we said, in this time space reality. So he doesn't have the advantage of looking back and knowing all that we know now kind of thing. And he certainly is, is a, he's a lot of different things, a lot of different wonderful things. And he's made all these incredible contributions. The Scientology thing is, is a cult, man. I mean, he's fallen into a cult and L. Ron Hubbard and his history. And you know, L. Ron Hubbard is, he's rooming with Jack Parsons. Within a couple of weeks, he's shacking up with Jack Parsons' girlfriend, steals his girlfriend. And then later on says, hey, uh, you know, Jack, I got a great idea. You're a rich trust fund kid you know, give us some money. We'll go buy a yacht in Florida and we'll sail it back here. And Jack Price like, really? Okay, great. Yeah. And it rips him off for his money, goes out in the desert, does the Aleister Crowley working. They're in constant con contact with Aleister Crowley. They're going to, they're going to bring forth the Antichrist, you know, because they have this kind of, 
satanic sex magic sensibility that you know all that kind of stuff i mean that is like that's in play it's in the it's baked into the bread now of scientology that's what scientology is about so ingo isn't responsible for that but then again ingo's bullshit meter doesn't work when it comes to scientology and he's into avatar and he's into the rest of this stuff and that doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual reality to that that he's tapping into but there's another side of it that he isn't tapping into either that should have put up his protector shields and said uh don't go there again a lot of opinion on my part but tear, tear it apart tell me what you think well you know i uh I, you know having worked on those books of ingo's having known him briefly it's what we said earlier. This is this was a flawed human, um, uh, and I think he well, was flawed. Pretty... Do you mean flawed, or do you mean just imperfect, like all of us are imperfect? Just imperfect, like all of us. Uh, and actually, you know, if you go into the Swan Archive in the University of South Georgia, um, the, you can see it. It's all there. I mean, all Ingo's correspondence with Elron Hubbard, all of his ideas about everything from Scientology to everything else is, is laid bare. And I don't think he, you know, you see, you see him warts and all, I guess is what I'm seeing. And I don't think he ever really tried to hide too much of that, certainly in his later life. Certainly when, you know, I saw him in New York, um, he was, you know, he never pretended to be perfect at all, but far from it. So that's about as far as I went. You know, I my 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 sort of vision was was fairly sort of tunneled on the whole remote viewing and Ingo thing by then. And I wasn't looking too much outside of it, to be honest. Remind people why you were so focused, because you've been super open, which is fantastic and allowed me to take the conversation a lot of different ways. But tell us more about resurrecting the mysterious. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the first volume, the first half of the book is really more about you know, Ingo trying to get us to understand what he would call our psychic systems. And he talks about a triad that is based on, you know, it's quite Jungian in some senses, uh, um, Freudian too, but it is, you know, there are, uh, there, are, there are sort of rational intellectual aspects to us there are uh, emotional aspects to us and there are these psychic aspects to us that are sort of subliminal. And all of these form into this psychic triad that he talks about. He even, <laughs> this is what makes it sort of like a game of three-dimensional chess. That is then overlaid by previous life triads. So you can imagine how all of this sort of swirls and interacts. Ingo then introduces us to this idea that there are energies and forces, as he calls them, that swirl around us. And if we don't get a grip on our psychic senses, we stand in danger of being blown uh, uh, around by these energies and forces towards the direction that Ingo rather ominously refers to as the fates. Fate and destiny in Ingo's uh, parlance are, are, are two very different things. Destiny is a positive thing. Fate is a negative thing. And 
he's asking us really in that first volume to take responsibility for our psychic selves. And if we don't, we, as I said, we stand in danger of being blown by the fates uh, and maybe not in a good way. So that's the first volume. The second volume is really about how that, you know, if we can for a second consider ourselves as a, a sort of node in this matrix or multiverse that is out there, um, it's more about understanding the nature of the multiverse. And we talked about that as being an emerald kingdom uh, and, you know, characterized by uh, uh, many, many things. But the, I think the value, the, certainly the value that I got from having worked on that manuscript was that it allowed me to see how a psychic thinks because Ingo really lays it bare, um, certainly a, a, about what consciousness is from his perspective. Uh, writing, I think he wrote it in the sort of 19, mid-1990s timeframe. So he'd had plenty of time to think about what consciousness meant to him. And then overlaying that on what science is beginning to say underwrites consciousness, the whole quantum mechanical aspects to consciousness, if that's a real thing, um, how space-time, as you referred to earlier, Alex, is uh, uh, influential on us in our 3D, 4D lives. You know, so marrying Ingo's worldview in that book to what science says was something of real value to me and I think has helped me go forward in my own research, you know, where I want to go next, I suppose, in, in sort of looking at all of this. Great. Speaking of where you want to go next, where do you want to go next? <laughs> well, I don't, <laughs> I said I don't know. It's not exactly like I'm not Indiana Jones making this up as I go along, but um, you know, there is an element of sort of whimsy in all of this. I, 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 I uh, obviously I'm writing novels. I mean, I have a, uh, a second book that follows the grid to complete. That's nearly done. Um, I've got other things in the nonfiction field that I'm working on. Uh, I'm working on the whole uh, aerospace industry as a uh, force that can hopefully bring you know, uh, change to the planet on the sort of the climatic thing that we've sort of touched on. Uh, so I, I, I'm left brain, right brain. I do lots of different things and they lead me into interesting areas. So, um, you know, for which I'm very grateful. So I, I, I plan ahead, but I don't, I, I'm not too hidebound by my plans. I try and stay in the now <laughs> as far as I can. Well, fantastic. It's been just a great conversation. I so, so enjoyed it. And, uh, this is a great book. So do check it out and check out Nick's website where you can find all this stuff. Nickcook.works. You'll, you'll find all that stuff. So Nick, fantastic having you on. Thanks again so much. Thank you, Alex. I, I've really enjoyed it. Time's flown. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks again to Nick Cook for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I tee up from this interview is, what do you think about Nick's line? 
what kind of line do we expect the Pentagon to really draw in terms of sharing information? And how does that relate to how we should process this latest UFO report? I resist, resist calling it UAP. I hate that phony baloney fake change the acronym thing. But what do you think we should make of the line they're trying to maintain? Let me know your thoughts. Track me down any way you can. Lots of good shows coming up. Stay with me for all of that. Until next time, take care. Bye for now.